Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to a special live edition of the Sanctum Socorum podcast. Uh, this is this is a, this is a real special episode for us. So I'm going to jump in, of course, introducing the other keepers of mystery we have with us: Keeper Jan, we have Keeper Mark, hi everyone, we have of course myself, Keeper Bob, and our two very special guests. Uh, first is the only child of Jack and Norma Vance. He was born in 1961 in Oakland and grew up in a house full of books and pulp magazines with a, with a life filled with neighbors, authors, artists, and kind of a, a bohemian crowd that uh, is, is certainly unmatched. With us is John Vance. Hello there. Nice to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you. Uh, and also with us is the general and only manager of Spatterlight International, the uh, European-based complement to John Spatterlight Press, LLC. Uh, in Vancian circles, he's been known as the laughing mathematician. He's been known as Kilovolt. We have with us Kuhn Weiverman of Spatterlight International. Howdy, Good to be here. Thank you. It is it again. It is it is nothing other than a uh, absolute pleasure and an honor to have the the two of you with us. Um, obviously, with the Dying Earth Kickstarter going on, it's really brought uh, in in our particular gaming circles more attention to to the Dying Earth and a, a brighter focus amongst our community on the works of Jack Vance in general. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm getting ready to read the Great Prince. But uh, let let's start with Dying Earth, gentlemen. Uh, we'll we'll start with, we'll start with with Kuhn. What was your favorite Dying Earth story? Um, well, that, it, it it may sound a bit fishy, but my favorite Dying Earth story is is, is actually the one that I first read, which was uh, the Seventeen Virgins. And the, the reason it was a favorite story is not because it concerns virgins and 17 number, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, it was actually the first uh, the, the first Google episode that I ever read because it was published um, just like the Bag of Dreams. It was published way ahead of the second Google book. And in, in the Dutch language edition, which I read it in originally, it appeared first in, a, uh, in an anthology with plenty of other authors and short stories in the fantasy area. And and I, I totally loved it, especially the scene with the uh, uh, with the uh, demon and, and and his tongue attached uh, pulsifer servant. 
who was cleaning his teeth and who had this play uh, had to play a game of cards with Google. So I, I totally loved it, and and that's uh, that's how I first fell in love with the Dying Earth stories in particular. I, I knew other fan stories already for a long time, but this one was was my first Dying Earth exposure. Now, now, John, I understand it's kind of an unfair question, right, to ask you to choose choose a favorite uh, among some of your father's works. But do you have a do you have a favorite Dying Earth story? I, I have to say that I don't. There, there's something in in all of them that um, that will make me laugh, um, or that will remind me of something about my dad that that uh, that I like to think about. And uh, they're all they're all different, and um, some of them are very different. But uh, I I like them all. I, I would say that the the um, the very earliest, well. The first, like Mazarian the Magician, um, the style is so distinct that um, it sort of stands on its own in my mind. Um, and I enjoy that for its, um, you know, stylistically, it's, 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 um, it's a treat. Um, but the first Kugel um, story, Eyes of the Overworld, um, or Kugel the Clever, um, was was interesting and entertaining, and there's there's still plenty of things in there that I enjoy, but I don't enjoy it as much as the um, the second Kugel uh, uh, book um, originally published as Kugel Saga, and uh, but my dad's title for that was Kugel the Skybreak Spatterlight, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it, Dad had grown up quite a bit, and his his um, his conception or his his internal view of Kugel. Um, and who Kugel was and, and how to make the most out of that character had really developed by that time. And so the, uh, the humor was, you know, I think that, I think that the, the Kugel was originally not really all that funny. He was, you know, by the way, I watched your, your show yesterday and I, I heard you mention him as amoral and morally <laughs> deficient. <laughs> morally deficient or something. Yeah. Well, I mean that, you know, the idea, I think, behind Kugel was he was just, um, and by the way, I know that I'm taking this kind of off, off into different uh, uncharted territories here, but uh, (laughs) uh, yeah, Kugel, I don't think was ever meant to be a bad guy. Um, but he certainly wasn't meant to be a good guy. He was just, you know, a guy who was trying to, to get along, um, without the benefits of, you know, good looks or, or wealth. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, he, uh, he was, he, he was, resourceful let's just put it that way who was resourceful <laughs> and uh you know um so he was very resourceful in the first book but in the second book he um dad turned it into a a lovely um he he learned how to get kugel um you know into funny scrapes uh, where he would emerge with great amounts of wealth or or uh, privilege or of one sort or another and then of course you know just by some some you know little twinge of fate it loses it all and that that's that's the that's the uh that's the stuff. but anyway so i like them all yeah well and that and that makes perfect sense and that's and, and that that's also that's a i think a really good way for people to, to look at, at kugel in general because he's certainly he certainly while he's not heroic he's certainly not a villain he just he, he is he is focused on number one that is that's who he's looking out for and uh, and and while there is some kind of i would say moral ambiguity um, he is not necessarily a bad guy for it um, and you know that 
you you mentioning how you know the stories of course any one of the stories um, might remind you of something something uh, of your past and your father we've noticed that you know over the span of the dying earth stories things certainly changed and you know that that sort of uh, evolution of kugel is a is a perfect example and and uh, and how your your father made those made those connections and changes um are there are there any other sort of specific growth moments in the writing of Dying Earth that really stand out to you that that uh, readers might want to actually look out for? Um, well, I think I think the big the big switch over or the big the big change would come um, with the completion of of the the book that was originally entitled The Dying Earth, um, the collection of, of of uh, stories that was released. Uh, when was it, Cohen? Was it 50 or late? I think the Hillman, the Hillman edition was 51 or 52, I believe. Yeah. 51 or 52. But, but that was, that was quite early work for my dad. He, he, um, and in fact, it's surprising. I, I find it surprising that that work came before a lot of his later early work, if you know what I mean? Um, because it's so, so polished and so um, so beautiful in a lot of ways, um, but it was also it was also his the work of a younger man who who was um, it's not that he was trying to impress anybody, but he he was um, he was definitely demonstrating and 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 kind of um, unleashing a lot of stuff that he'd been carrying around in his brain, you know, since his childhood because he was a very very um, precocious kid and, and, and read a lot of fantasy and, and uh, was probably not all that. I don't know. I mean, he, he became a very practical man, but when he was a, a child, I think he was probably not all that practical. He was very interested in, in, um, in fantastic things. But anyway, so that, that, that early piece of work right there is so different um, than the, you know, the eyes of the overworld and, and, um, and everything that came after that, that I would say that that was, that would be a growth moment right there is, and it's, it's a major one. It's just basically kind of a, a change from the younger man, um, you know, transitioning into the, into the, um, you know, the married man. And then, you know, the, the, the older guy who was more established. And, uh, again, that that makes perfect sense, and you can you can see you can see the evolution and growth as as you read well all of his work. I mean, because of course there's a lot more to to your father than than simply the dying earth, and it that that evolution and, and growth as an author really kind of shines through. But it 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 never it to me it never felt like it started raw or unpolished. There was always a very polished quality to it. Um, we were we were discussing last night um, the language usage in that uh, it was it was always very methodical and well chosen. Things weren't just thrown in there, you know, to to uh, to just sort of blanket blanket cover something. All of the words were so specifically chosen and crafted to give that alien feel of of the dying earth that. <laughs> I, I can't I can't even imagine how long it took him to craft the individual stories. It just I can't wrap my head around it. I, and e even though you know, I through the uh, Kickstarter and, and through Mark, I've been allowed to sort of play in the sandbox a little bit. 
it, it just it, it, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. No, I did. Dad was yeah. Go ahead, Jen. Sorry, I, I do have a question. Um, I found a list of uh, fifty-four verified publications of uh, just the first book, Dying Earth, uh, and those are each with separate ISBNs. Um, uh, that's like 43 different cover artists that are listed specifically. Um, I'm really curious how many of those are from Spatterlight Press. Um, and and I mean, I, I want to dig into some of the, the publication side of this too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, John, would you would you mind if I take this one? First? Please do, please do. Okay, so um, <clears throat> Spatterlight Press began as the uh, as the, as the digital outlet for uh, for fans. Um, so back in 2011, 2012, we started publishing our Spatterlight Press uh, English digital editions in ebook, uh, Kindle, and and uh, EPUB editions, basically. And uh, we were we were um, uh, we were looking for cover art. So um, being a startup, we did not really have um, uh, a budget for uh, uh, spending thousands of dollars on cover art for each book. But but we found soon enough that uh, plenty of uh, established artists and uh, uh, comic book uh, illustrators and what have you um, approached us and and said like, hey, uh, I'd be very happy to have my art on this or that particular fans uh, book. So. Uh, we worked out an agreement with these fellows, like, okay, we're very thankful uh, to, to have your support in this, uh, um, but uh, we cannot offer a lot of monetary value in return, but they were all fine with it, and we just had plenty of really good cover art. And for the Dying Earth book in particular, um, I think we first went with the illustrations by the French artist called, uh, well, his, his nom de plume is uh, Liane. Um, he, um, he is one of the co-creators of the um, 20 years ago, I think, of the eight-volume uh, Shea, Planet of Adventure uh, graphic novel, together with Jean-David Morvan, who wrote the scenario. And Lian um, actually uh, drew a graphic novel in eight volumes for, uh, for Shea. And uh, he was very happy to, uh, to contribute the, uh, the four covers that you see on, on our um, e-books for the Dying Earth titles. Uh, later on, when we started doing print-on-demand editions, uh, we got in touch with a, a Russian fellow, a really uh, smart and, and bright chap called Konstantin Korobov. He's from uh, Yekaterinburg, um, and I actually met him once when he was on, in Amsterdam here on, a, on an art fair business. Uh, really great chap. And, and he had this wonderful painting of uh, Mazurian the magician staring at his little labyrinth where he had locked up uh, one of the other guys, I think it was Turgeon, Turgeon. Uh, together with a little dragon racing around a, a simplistic labyrinth. And, and, and that illustration struck us as really, uh, wow, this is like uh, you have Rembrandt illustrating um, illustrating fans, for example. And, uh, and we, we started working together with Constantine and he, uh, he created quite a few covers for us, not only for the Dying Earth titles, but also for the Alastor books and for the uh, Durdane books. And uh, we're ha very happy with his support and with the, the talent that he's exhibiting. Um, um, and, and of course, he's also a Vance fan, couldn't be otherwise. Um, so uh, to come back to your uh, original question, or sort of, kind of, um, Yes, uh, the different ISBNs would probably be different uh, ISBNs for ebooks, for print editions. And uh, there's basically two sets of cover illustrations for that. Uh, one would be the Lian covers, and the other one will be the uh, Korobov covers. 
Awesome. Well, um, and and you deal with books other than just the dying earth. Obviously, you you kind of answered that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, how did how did you start working together with the the Vance Estate? Uh, well, that's very simple in a way. <laughs> um, You've had a long uh, relationship uh, yeah, doing well, this. Yes. Um, I, I, I used to work for a company in software development that uh, that would have annual user groups uh, coming together somewhere in the US. And one year it was on the East Coast, then it was in the middle, then it was on the West Coast. And uh, at some point in, I think, John, I think it was 2000 or maybe, yeah, it must have been 2000. Uh, there was a conference in Long Beach. And um, I had been reading Vans since I was a kid, and uh, I figured, like, hey, there's this Vans Integral Edition going on. Uh, I'm just going to write a mail and see uh, if I could pop over to say hi, bring a good bottle of wine, and uh, see what happens. And uh, so I got invited to uh, to the house in, in Oakland with John and, uh, uh, and Jack and Norma, and uh, spent a really good um, evening there, had dinner together, had a lot of fun, uh, chatted with Jack about uh, the... Um, well, the different theories about the origins of the universe, basically. And that was actually quite funny because I, uh, I used to be a, um, an astrophysicist by, uh, by education. And so I was sitting there at, uh, at, at dinner with my, uh, my favorite author, uh, who was in his 80s at that time, uh, discussing all kinds of, uh, of, of weird theories about the origins of the universe. Uh, but at that time, I also met John. And I think that, that's probably the point where we became friends and we became... Um, well, we became uh, we had the habit of mailing each other in case of uh, questions arising in the content of the in the context of the events integral edition. Uh, so we we started working together together basically at that point. And then when when John wanted to produce ebooks, uh, I I was asked to be involved. As were a number of other um, strangely all of them Dutch fellows. Um, and um, well, that's how it got rolling. Did does that answer your question, or did you? Did you want something more specific in? in uh, <laughs> well, and and you mentioned the the Vance Integral Edition, the the V I E, which is, you know, as 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 a bibliophile and and just a, a lover of all things books, I, it it, it it's gobsmacking. It is it is jaw dropping. What a massive project that was to to strip everything back to to Jack Vance's original words to undo all of the edits that that may have crept in and all of the errors that may have crept in over the years and and that was to my understanding that was a, a massive community project wasn't it gentlemen uh, i'll i'll say something and then i'm sure kun can add uh more to it but yes it was it was absolutely enormous um and uh it is mind-boggling it, it might have been I mean, I don't know if if there'd be any way to double check this, but it could have been one of the first crowdsourcing, um, you know, endeavors that really ever took off. If maybe not the first, I don't know, but but uh, it all happened because of the internet and um, and the uh, I don't know the <clears throat> the spirit, if you will, of, of Paul Rhodes, who is um, a fan, um, very passionate guy, um, who just I guess he had some spare time. And, uh, you know, decided that that um, that my dad's work was was going down the drain. It was becoming obscure. A lot of it was out of print. A lot of it had been stepped on fairly heavily editorially. Um, and so he just decided that he was going to do something about it. And so he started talking to people and, and uh, one thing led to another. And, um, you know, there was 
you know, there's a handful of people, then there was a couple of dozen, and then there wound up being, what, Kuhn, like 300 volunteers or yeah, something probably, like that? It's probably been about 300 core volunteers who pulled off the um, the whole project together. And and Kuhn um, knows a lot more about the inner workings of the project and the management of it and and uh, and and the processes and so on. I, I was kind of an observer. I did the bookkeeping um, and tried to stay out of the way mostly. Um, but uh, yeah, Kuhn, why, why don't you take it from there? Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I totally agree with with what John just said. Uh, around the turn of the um, century or the millennium, if you, if you want, um, the, 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 my, my searches for Jack Vance on the internet began throwing up uh, something called Vance Integral Edition. And um, I, I read a bit about these things and I, I figured that I don't know who these guys are, but they must be out of their minds. Uh, this is not possible. I mean, you, you cannot pull off a, an integral edition, a limited set of books of, of the entire Vance works uh, with a bunch of volunteers over the internet. I mean, that must be like, what, a meter and a half in shelf space? Impossible. <laughs> so um, um, I sort of forget, for, forgot about that. And a year later, I uh, I did my same set of searches again for some reason. And I, I stumbled on, on, on the prim, Primordial VIE Projects website. And I noticed like, damn, these guys have a business plan and I'm reading it and it looks like somebody was had been thinking about how this might work and how they could pull this off. And um, so as is my want, um, I basically stuck up my hand and said, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's been a really interesting uh, project in the sense that we, we had to f- come up with uh, standards and procedures and ways of communication and archiving things and, and verifying things uh, all out of nowhere because it had really not been done before. And uh, well, wouldn't you know it, uh, in 2002, uh, the first half of the uh, integral edition was published and in 2005, the second half. So uh, we did really pull it off uh, thanks to an incredible number of really talented people with many backgrounds, but with one really big dedication uh, being the fact that they wanted to see the works of their favorite author back in print and in the uh, idealist possible uh, condition that is with the um, uh, with the full voice of Vance uh, restored to his own stories where it had been edited away and, and, and chiseled away slowly over the decades. So that's what happened. Well, and and that that brings me to a kind of a follow up question. When when I just recently reread the the Dying Earth, it was I think it's the Fantasy Masterwork series that that collected it all into one volume. And so I'm curious um, from from the other print editions, are there are there very large changes, or are there just are there smaller changes that affect the voice and tone when 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 I sit down to read the integral edition? Because I'm going to, of course. <laughs> am I am I going to am I going to notice more of a, a a difference in just the overall feel, or are there some bigger changes that crept in, crept in over the years? a great question. Take that one, Kuhn, and then I'll follow up with a little comment. Okay, good. So um, in in general, uh, Bob, um, there are a lot of differences. Um, The the, the degree to which text has been uh, have been restored to their original condition is is very different. Uh, Off the top of my head, um, I don't know if in um, the original Dying Dying Earth book, for example, there will will be a lot of changes. But just to name one other title, I, I know for a fact that in a book like Starking, the Starking, the, the first book of the Demon Princess sequence, uh, there has been a lot of um, editorial changes that have been undone. Uh, typically, um, 
there are a number of categories which you may have uh, gleaned in the in, in the paper I sent you um, uh, that that may be worth a mention. For example, uh, earlier on in, in in Jack's career, the the stories that went through the pulp magazines uh, sometimes were edited for how it might look like in the uh, bicolumnar uh, page layout of the pulps. So, for example, uh, longer paragraphs would be broken down uh, because it would offer a resting point for the eye of the reader, for example. Um, and another kind of um, editorial changes that we have uh, encountered, I'm afraid, is basically, um, well, I, I can't call it anything nice, it's it's vocabulary dumbing down. Uh, Vance was always very, um, uh, very to the point in choosing the exact right word for something. And, and even if that meant using uh, um, Making uh, it up. <laughs> well, yeah, making it up was one way Sometimes. of talking with it. But <laughs> there's been a lot of made-up words. But but even for those that weren't, many people sometimes thought that they were made up because they they, they were maybe less used words or uh, or maybe archaic forms of existing words, etc. But 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 Jack had this wonderful uh, dictionary, John, which you probably still have somewhere around the house that he received, that he got as a present from his uh, his uncle or his grandfather. It was his grandfather's. Yeah, it was his grandfather. So, 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 so Jack made it uh, a pride of his to always pick the right word. So, in the early days, when uh, when he um, when he would sell a book or a story to a publisher, they would the publisher would then give it to an editor who would then uh, probably be paid by the uh, by the word that they changed or whatever. And and sometimes the vocabulary was simply simplified by um, throwing out all these original and, and fanciful old words and, and inserting something plainer and, and more modern. And um, again, I'm not saying that you will see this in the Dying Earth books because I, I can't remember, but uh, that's something we definitely uh, no, uh, noticed and, and undid during the VIE project. I'll, I'll follow up with a, a comment about um, the VIE, which was which is that up to the time of that project, um, we we didn't. I'll just I'll just make it real short. Um, we didn't have any digital copies of my dad's stories, aside from um, some of the Leoness stories and 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 Cadwall and so on. But it was really the VIE because one of the outputs of the VIE was not simply the the volumes that we have on, on the shelves over here, but was all the stories digitized and cleaned up and 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 um, and that enabled. Kuhn and I to later come back and, in a practical terms, do our ebook project and then our print-on-demand project. So it really opened the gates for us to do anything uh, later that we wanted to do and which we did do. And and the other comment was that ever since the VIE, we have shared those files with any other English language publisher um, who, and and uh, you know, to use in their in their um, publications. And I don't think that we've had anybody turn us down. So when you see a modern edition of a Vance story, um, it uses the VIE text. And, and finally, we use the VIE texts in our, in our Spatterlight editions. Bob, in case, you, if, in case you don't wind up with a, an actual VIE on your shelves, you can just buy our Spatterlight book. Well, and, and it, it definitely, it definitely uh, I'm going to need shelves. There, there's so many volumes, but I'm going to have to, I'm, my wife knows, and she's face palming. I'm a completist. So once I start, I am going to have to have. I, I was just, yeah, after I, I, I was online looking for 
for editions or copies of the VIE, and it's very hard to find <laughs> and very rare. But now with with print on demand, I, and I, I think that's the greatest thing to come out of this project is in in the modern day with with ebooks and with print on demand, there is no reason that anyone should ever go out of print. Mm-hmm. And and while while some of some of your father's works have gone out of print and and come back, one of the things that we've noticed, uh, Goodman Games for Gen Con also sells appendix and books. You know, there's spinner racks of old pulp paperbacks and Jen and I do quite a bit of the buying for that. And I've noticed in the past couple of years, it is getting much harder to find your father's work in, uh, in used bookstores because people are snapping them up and they're not letting them go, which is, which is really nice to see. Uh, Cause I'm kind of the, the same, the same way with, yeah. with things that I love. Uh, And and for our international fans, I should ask, uh, Kuhn, off the top of your head, uh, related to the Dying Earth series alone, how many language translations have there been through Spatterlight? I I remember that we discussed this before going live here, but uh, I forgot to look it up. Uh, But my my guess is that there will be at least uh, uh, 15 different language translations. And um, I'm just saying this because um, uh, there will soon be more. Uh, um, th- there's going to be a, a world premiere, so to speak, uh, in the next coming, coming months. Uh, we just sold the rights for the Dying Earth books to uh, two publishers, one located in Turkey. So this will be the first Turkish edition of the Dying Earth books ever. And, uh, and, this, and, and this is even going to be a, an, an edition in Farsi, so a publisher in Tehran. Uh, bought rights to to publish it for the uh, um, Iranian fans, whom I've been told are many and very interested in reading fantasy and science fiction, but there's not a lot to go by. So uh, we're happy to uh, be able to offer these guys some fans to read. That that must be zones for a particular challenge in terms of translating an yeah. author <laughs> who uses language, you know, in a way in English at least, you know. But, and I'm kind of curious, like, of that that experience and like how, how that kind of project gets approached and, and what your experience is with working with you new know, translations. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's something that uh, we, we do in a rather hands-off way, obviously. I mean, uh, neither John nor I speak or read or write Farsi or Turkish or what have you. Uh, I, I, can, I can follow up with some of the international editions because I, I do speak a bit of French and a bit of Italian, a bit of Spanish, etc. cetera. Uh, but um, uh, these languages are like way out of our league, and uh, just like we have a, a good friend of ours who uh, who takes care of the Russian translations, uh, I do hope that these uh, things end up in in the right hands. And uh, what I'm told by the publishers is that uh, yes, they are giving them to people who actually know Vance's work and who love it and who uh, who love to work on a project like that. Do do either of you end up fielding a lot of questions from people doing translation? Uh, from not particularly from people doing translations, but we we do uh, end up having a lot of questions from from publishers, which is a good thing because it shows that there's still a lot of interest globally in all kinds of languages uh, into uh, many Vance uh, stories. Yeah, my my mother and uh, father did did get some mail uh, from translators in the old days. Um, uh, Arlette Rosenblum, uh, who translated, didn't she do the Lean S story screen? Sorry, uh, Arlette Rosenblum, um, oh, the, the French lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. But anyway, so we have we did uh, answer some questions, but um, 
yeah. It it would be difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it does work. Yeah, I I I I I can only think of of the term monumental really when it when it comes to that. I mean, especially especially since now his entire voice has been restored with these additions and that that full richness of text that many people will have never seen before and will never have read before. The the idea of then of translating that and and keeping that keeping that tone is. Yeah, that's that's a Herculean task in and of itself, I think. I'd like to insert um, something uh, right here. I don't know if we were going to get to it or not, um, but uh, about language and about vocabulary and about choice of words and things, um, which would be to say that um, maybe maybe um, against your your um, suspicions, Dad, he he didn't he didn't um, use words to show off. I mean, you know, it, it was, it was a question, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe you're not thinking that, but, but the thing is that some person might think, why did he use that word when he could have used, you know, a different word. Um, but he, he just had, um, he had a big mind. My dad, he, he had a, he had a very big mind. He was, he was not, he was not a particular specialist um, in, in any particular, um, you know, field or except writing. Um, but but he but he had a very broad scope of of uh, knowledge and interest um, and experience as well, and uh, uh, I don't know where, why I brought that up, but but anyway, he he just he was he was pretty humble actually in a lot of ways, and and he was not trying to show off. He just he took pride uh, in in his work. He wanted to communicate ideas with as few words as possible, um, and and he he had a, some different uh, ideas that that he mentioned over the years. Um, but, but he didn't want to use, uh, any spare sentences or words or anything that didn't advance the story. So that, so that it's like, you know, I mean, if, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like crack or something, you know, right. I mean, it's just, it just goes right for the, right for your, um, for your, um, cognitive, you know, regions, if you will. <laughs> you do know that analogy is going to be reused, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, maybe just edit it out or something. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. So, so um, no, he just was, uh, he loved language. And, and one of the things that, um, that we used to do, or he used to do is say, John, uh, you know, look up a word for me. And, and I'd go over to a dictionary or a thesaurus or something like that and, and, and pick out some word and, and, and we'd look at it and, and, um, and then we'd talk about, you know, we'd read about the, the history and the origins of the word and, you know, its roots and all that kind of stuff. And it was always fascinating. And I, I think I picked up an interest in words from him from doing that. But anyway, he just loved words. He loved language. And, um, you know, if there was the right word that fit in a particular place, he would use it. If it, if it went with the, with the sort of the flow of the, of the sentences and the paragraphs. And, and um, he's very artistic in the way he approached. Um, uh, he, he wanted the reading to be a pleasure. Um, and, uh, you know, I, of course, I mean, there, there, for, for a lot of us, there are places where we got to, Oh my gosh, you know, where's the dictionary go over there. And, you know, and, and that, that kind of interrupts things a little bit sometimes. Uh, but um but anyway, yeah. So he he was he was just trying to just do the best possible job that he could, and he worked really really hard at it. His stories uh, often went into three drafts, and I and I cannot neglect to mention my mom. I know I'm going way off topic here, but uh, they worked very closely together. Um, he, my dad would hand write um, before before the early '80s when he got his first word processor. He would hand write manuscripts, 
give that to my mother who would type them. She would handwrite, she would pass the typewritten script back to my dad. He would edit it. And then she would retype that and she would hand it back to him. And usually at that point, there were relatively minor changes, but there could be, you know, changes that went into paragraphs or even pages or, you know, you know, the editing went on for as long as, um, as long as my dad felt that it wasn't pretty close to perfect in his later work, his earlier work, um, in, you know, that he wrote in, in the fifties and, and probably into the, into the early, early sixties, you know, he was, he was less, um, concerned with, um, producing something that he was, he really loved, um, than simply getting paid because he, dad, dad wrote to, to, to make money. He didn't, he didn't write because it was his lifelong ambition or um, because it was the only thing that he wanted to do. The truth is that he wanted to do a lot of other things, um, but he just found that, that writing was a way that he could, he could pay the bills and it left time for him to do um, other things with his life. You know, we, we sort of discussed last night, actually, and it's, it's fascinating, first of all, to, to discover that he was, he was writing his treatments longhand, that's, which is, which is ab- that that sort of thing, especially today, it's it's so much easier. You know, people just throw something into Word, and then they can just tweak and edit and change. And I think that all of your father's work really shows the kind of concise language choices of someone that that doesn't want to write something out four times if he doesn't have to. It, it's it's all about trying to get it right the first time. And and I don't I, and I don't think. I don't. I don't think I ever felt that he was uh, was trying to show off with language so much as he was really very selective. There was an image that he wanted to put onto paper, and there was a feeling he wanted to evoke. And, it, and while he certainly wasn't big on like long you know, descriptions of things, there was always there was always that tone, and and the the tone is what carries through in everything. He certainly wasn't a I get paid by the word, so let me pad my word count kind of guy. There, everything everything in the story belongs in the story, and there really isn't any fat to trim, uh, which is which is rare. And with the language use we were also discussing last night, when you look at, at authors from the 30s, 40s, 50s, through like the 70s, and you compare it to authors today, when you were talking about how oh, for for lack of a nicer term, your, your father's work by editors would be dumbed down. We've seen, we've seen the impact that has had on the entire industry. You know, the, 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 vo- the common vocabulary used today is, is much less interesting than it was. And, and your father's work certainly stands out among, among the most interesting because of it. Um, Not to mention the pronunciations. <laughs> Of said words. He he didn't want to bring up a few pronunciations. (laughs) We can we can start and stop and and settle some online fights immediately. No, no, we 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 can't because John told us earlier that that there's no quote unquote right way. Um, The the important thing is they enjoy the story. They can say and hear whatever they like. But is there a preferred um, way? <laughs> to that, I think um, I think officially the DCC Dying Earth team is going to be adopting the pronunciations as remembered by the Vance family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, definitely Ascalay, Kugel, uh, Foselm, I own stones. At, yeah, or, that one was a big one for me. It, yeah, it, I don't know. You know? No, you're well, I don't know. No, I mean I don't know how. Uh, 
I don't think we really talked about it too much. Kun, do you have any, how would you, how do you, what's the approved pronunciation for that? I, I, I don't have any recollection of talking about that particular uh, topic with your dad, so I, I wouldn't know. I think it's probably Ayun, you know, that would be the best that I could come up with. We'll see, that's how uh, Gary Gygax pronounced it. Uh, interestingly, in the audio versions, uh, the, the ones done uh, fairly recently, I guess, 2010, um, it's I-O-U-N stones. <laughs> yeah. well, I have to say that some of the audio recordings that we've heard have been um, uninspired. Uh, what's the word? Uh, I get the right word there. No, but, you know, just sort of like, oh, no. Oh, uh, yeah, um, some, some of the older ones are a little bit. Eh. Yeah, I mean, they tried. I don't really object to it, but I don't think it could, but I think it could be better. I mean, it's, it's, it's like referring to totality as T-O-T-T-L, etc. <laughs> exactly. Just because it's capitalized. And, uh, <laughs> like you can't just, just spell it. Uh, yeah. Some of the others that, that really came into our purview were uh, the city of Cayenne, uh, Prince Candive, of course. Uh, there is a little bit of discrepancy whether it's Leanne or Leanne, or if you're on the Gygax family, it's Leanne. Uh, Mor- Morion. That's the way uh, mom and dad um, spoke the name. Yeah. There we go. I mean, it doesn't get more official than that. <laughs> One thing about um, all these is that. Um, this was another one of the little um, things that I picked up just, you know, l- just listening to the conversation around here was it that, that uh, dad was not interested in um, anything too cute. You know, I mean, he just when, when he wrote names, he he didn't want to make them tricky or hard or or in fact, he 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 would have been not interested in a in a in a conversation about how to pronounce his his names, you know, because truly it really didn't matter. I mean, they meant something to him, but he knew darn well that the names would mean exactly what they meant. They, they, that they, that they would mean exactly what they should mean to the reader. Um, and so, so he wrote to be read and, and his, his, his idea was to, was to get out of the way of the whole process of, he, he wanted to tell a story, but he didn't want to personally, um, be there in the background, uh, you know, um, like, uh, you know, like pulling rabbits out of hats and, you know, you know, with language and things like that. So anyway, but however people want to pronounce these things. Yeah. John, John, I may be, I may be taking this step too far, but uh, in, in, in my recollection, uh, he was more concerned with the way things looked on paper than how you would pronounce them out loud. Uh, the, the way he would construct certain or, or prefer certain words or, over certain others was uh, to do with uh, the, the color of a word in, in terms of what kinds of, uh, vowels are, are appearing in, in which places, etc. Mm. And, and we and we do see that in the um, um, in the files that we recovered from some of the old hard drives. That there are actually lists of of, uh, of proper names, lists of, of uh, potential names for characters and for places uh, that perhaps he just typed them in as he uh, as he as he thought of them and figured like, hey, maybe this will come in handy at some point, and you see a lot of very colorful words there, and some of them have actually been used in the stories, but others have not. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's true. Released? Sorry? <laughs> Will those files ever be released in the public? <laughs> uh, 
I don't know. We we have no plans uh, at at this time, I guess. But that's that a really interesting. Bring up a question. Oh, go ahead, Mark. Well, it, because a lot of what we're you know what we're bringing to this project, and especially to the the community that surrounds like the role playing game community, you know that that audio audio sort of version of Vance is something that it's really fascinating to hear that he wasn't particularly interested in that, or or even you know stepping out out of the way, and that you know unlike a lot of authors who may you know, try to get their stories in a, in a readable, you know, to be read out loud, right? So that being a, a you know, a kind of a core motivation. But when we, we get together around with players of the game or players of role-playing games, a lot of that is communicated, you know, verbally and, and we're not so much sharing, you know, the written word. And so that that's fascinating just to, just to kind of know that background and, and also just guidance that, you know, we can give as, you know, people playing this game. It's like, you yeah, know, it's your, it's however you want to, you know, play with this, you know, and, and, but there's still that process that they have to go through and say, okay, how do I pronounce this? <laughs> you know, I'm getting into yeah. my, to my group of people who may not know Vance, you know. I, 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 hear, I hear the question there, but I'm, I'm, I'm not an RPG player myself, so I, I cannot speak out from a position of authority here. But my, my advice to, to, to you and to your players would be not to focus too much on individual words, but try to get into the spirit of the characters, try to get into the, the, the wit of the dialogue. And uh, uh, Jen, you, you asked me at the very start what my, what my favorite Dying Earth uh, story was. And um, maybe I'll have to change it already. Uh, I think Bag of Dreams is my favorite, if only for the, uh, for, for, for the hilarious dialogue that's in there. Like, um, John, was it Google who said at some point that uh, I would offer some congratulations were it not for this tentacle gripping my leg? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I could be of more use if. Not for this tentacle wrapped around my leg. Or... Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so try to get into the uh, into the character and the spirit of it all, rather than focusing on, on these individual words. I mean, they add to the colorfulness of, of the whole uh, adventure, of course, but it's it's only a part of it. That's fair. That's fair. Um, as as the uh, editor for the project, I'm much more fixated on the correct spelling of a lot of these terms, especially the ones that are new to us. Uh, so, uh, but speaking of, um, we have a little thing here. We've, we've got Vancian versus Vancian. What I A N? You know, that doesn't play out well audibly, so you might describe the difference. I'm 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 getting there. I can't type as fast as I think. Uh, so, a lot of a lot of gamers know the term Vancian magic based on things like the Ion Stones and you know a lot of the memorized magic and tricks of of that nature. And we all know it as the one ending in I A N. Uh, but recently, I came across the term ending in E A N. So. Um, Kun, could you settle that one for me? <laughs> well, I, I, I will not settle it, but I will give you my, my own private interpretation of it. Uh, in, in the days of the Vance Integral edition, uh, people were spending inordinate amounts of time and energy and mental processes on, uh, on for example, on the placement of a single comma uh, in, in, in one of the books. Uh, or, or, or it for happens. <laughs> Or, or for that matter, for the for the, for the uh, for the non-existence of such a comma. Uh, in, in fact, at some point, there was even the notion of of a Vancian uncomma being proposed. 
<laughs> to indicate a comma that was not there because they decided not to use it, but that most other people would actually have used it in such a place, etc. So, so at, it, at that kind of level of detail, uh, people were thinking about all these matters. And uh, it was an ongoing debate in the VIE days whether Vancian would be spelled with a, should be spelled with an I or with an E. And um, I, don't, I don't know if anyone uh, took offense at me for, for it at the time, but at some point I decided to sort of hack the Gordian knot and propose that we should use Vancian with an I when using it as an adjective, like for example, in the terminology of a Vancian spell uh, or a Vancian repast, which I had before joining a meeting here tonight. Um, and, and that we should use the word, the, the word Vancian with an E spelling uh, to refer to a person, like for example, to a fellow Vancian, someone else who likes fan stories, etc. But, but that's strictly my own uh, interpretation at this point. And uh, I, I'm sure uh, most of the other guys who were involved would um, disagree um, and have lots of arguments against or before for it. <laughs> Nice to know that it's not just the gaming community that gets into loud online screaming matches about the proper pronunciation replacement. Of <laughs> it really is like the Sherlockian societies. I love it. <laughs> now we've had a couple uh, questions from viewers. Um, Hector Fonic wanted to know, um, John, was there any particular inspirations that your father drew on when writing Dying Earth? Was there was there any sort of precursor things that? that uh, started that off for him? Well, I think that he was, he was inspired by the authors that he had read um, as, as a young man and as a child. Um, Kuhn, the, the authors, you'll, you'll recall them better than I, uh, but, but he's, he, to the, the answer to the question that he was just inspired by, by um, authors that he had read um, when he was a child, but I don't think that there was anything, uh, you know, very personal about um, a lot of the stories, except just to on, uh, kind of um, tap and and open up those 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 places in his head where he'd had all these romantic, you know, you know, fantastic ideas about um, about all kinds of things, you know, and 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 just you know let it all out. It was kind of a a gush of of um, of you know of his youthful. Um, um, you know, in whatever you call it, passions. But Bakun, who, who the the early authors, C.L. Moore. Uh, uh, I'm I'm not speaking with the voice of, of authority here again, but uh, the the one that does uh, pop up most of the time is uh, Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah. And and particularly his uh, sequence of uh, stories, which are called Zotique, mm. because they uh, they are set in a world at the end of time with a lot of magic. But uh, Smith's take to it was much more poetic perhaps and 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 more um uh, he had more of a fantasy angle uh, uh to it in the sense that there, there were like these necromancers and, and all kinds of uh, uh traditional trope fantasy stuff whereas your dad took the idea maybe and, and made it into his own uh kind of end of times world no less colorful but a bit more adventurous and, and less uh, accents on the um uh, on the traditional uh, fantasy tropes May I ask a dovetailing question on behalf of the community? Sure. Uh, John, when your father was writing, did he often have any background music playing or was he one of those that liked to work in silence? Well, he, um, glad you asked that question um, because I, I would say that he wrote in silence um, for the most for the most part, but 
he was passionate about early jazz music. And I, I just wanted to mention that as a personal thing about him, um, that he um, utterly, um, I mean, talk about geeking out, Bob. I mean, my dad would geek out um, before the word geek even existed, um, <laughs> you know, over, over, um, you know, early, early, um, you know, Dixieland style jazz. But, but um, he, when he was, when he was young, he would go to shows and he'd see Turk Murphy and, and, um, and, uh, you know, he'd go to live shows. And in fact, I've, I've heard a recording um, f- from a Turk Murphy show that they used to play down here in Berkeley. There was a, there was a club down there that, that was, was uh, around when my dad was living in Berkeley, probably going to school. And I, I swear that I can hear my dad's voice in the audience shouting out. And he's like the first person. He's like, yeah, you know, at the end of the, at the end of this, uh, the end of the, the piece. Um, and of course, everybody else then comes in clapping, you know, um, and shouting. anyway. Um, yeah. So I, I think it was quiet. It was quiet, but, but he did like jazz. He loved jazz and uh, he also listened to some classical. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, there, there has actually been been quite a quite a bit of discussion about about music and and dying earth throughout the community. Music that they might be able to to use to set to help them set the tone and, and things of that nature. I'm not sure if jazz is where I'm not sure to go with that jazz <laughs> really would fit, but but it's but I'm that's a really neat, but that, that's a, a neat bit of bit of information that's because you know, Dixie Lane jazz has yeah. got a lot going for it. Uh, now we've, we also had another question um, and, and you mentioned that, you know, he, your, your father drew inspiration from the authors that he had read when he was younger and when he was a child. Um, was he a voracious reader? Was he kind of a casual reader? No, he, he was uh, as well. So um my dad had uh, had poor eyesight through mo- most of his life, um, and he wore glasses from an early age, um, and then he just progressively uh, started going truly well and truly blind um, in the uh, probably the second half of the the nineteen eighties. Um, but uh, but what on earth? Why, why did I mention that? Uh, what, what was the question? <laughs> was he a voracious reader? <laughs> oh, a voracious reader. Yes, yes, he was. Um, Yes. So he was, he was not an athlete. Um, he spent a lot of time, um, reading books. And I think he did mention that he, his mother, um, enjoyed, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, and, and some other authors that were in the sort of fantastic, um, uh, element back then. And so dad went through all those books. So I'm sure that was an inspiration to Burroughs. Um, but, uh, yeah, he read a lot until his vision started to fail. I get that's that's where I got off on it. Um, and then uh, and then he he probably read less um, uh, fiction anyway, uh, in the sort of prime of his life as he was producing a lot of uh, a lot of writing. Um, um, and then when his writing tapered off, he started listening to books, uh, recorded books on tape um, because he couldn't read them physically. So, so, yeah, it was it was something he wasn't going to give up no matter what. That's that's really nice to know. And and we have a we have a comment that Dying Earth and some latter years Miles Davis would be pretty interesting. Miles Davis, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dad, Dad wasn't into the the, the more modern um, interpretations of jazz. Jazz is a lot of things, as, as I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, yeah, yeah. I want to mention one more thing about Dying Earth and inspirations um, for Kugel uh, in particular. So um, 
my dad uh, was, uh, he was born into a, you know, a privileged family in San Francisco. Um, his, his mother was a, a socialite and her father was a, a, a very well-established attorney over there. Um, and, uh, but at a fairly early age, um, uh, there is some, the, the family kind of broke apart and um, my, my, uh, my dad and his younger brother and his younger sister, my dad was the middle child, he had two older brothers, uh, moved out to a ranch in Oakley, um, a little piece of property out on the, out, um, in the Delta, the Sacramento River Delta out there with his mother because his father had left. They divorced actually, which um, was pretty unusual back for those days. Mm-hmm. But, but um, it was a rough time for him. I mean, he, he read a lot of things um, and, he, and he loved going out and, and uh, flying kites and, you know, swimming in the, in the sloughs out there and, and uh, building little boats and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, but, um, but uh, his, uh, he was supported, the family was supported by his maternal grandfather, Heffler. He's the guy who gave us that, or that we got that dictionary form from. Um, but eventually what with um, prohibition, because, because Heffler well, was an attorney for the breweries um, uh, with prohibition came along and, and he lost a lot of his business. And then right after that was the depression. And so the family lost their money, their fortune, and um, and they had to give up the ranch. And at that point, my dad um, essentially had to go out and pick fruit. Um, and he he worked very hard, very um, with just uh, you know all sorts of folks um, out there, simply working, you know, uh, to 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 live basically. Um, and he he was um, any and he wound up being a laborer. Uh, you know, he used to hustle um, oxyacetylene tanks up and down, um, you know, granite slopes, you know, following a welder um, on mining, um, uh, mining in mines in the, in the Sierra Nevada. Um, and so on. So anyway, he knew a lot of, he knew a lot of hardship and he was hungry even some of the times. So what I'm getting around to saying is that some of Kugel, I think really comes from my dad's hunger and his kind of observation of the fortunate people, you know, having all these things that Darn it all. You know, I deserve some of that myself, you know, and somehow I think I'm going to get a little bit of it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, I can, I can really see that, that, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody that writes, writes, writes in a, uh, in a vacuum, their, their life experiences certainly shape everything. And that's a, a really good point about the foundation of Kugel. And it actually, it really puts the character into a sharper context when, when one, thinks about it that way mm-hmm. yeah now better than this recommendation here about google the clarinetist um <laughs> hilarious though <laughs> did you have something you wanted to add oh, no I, I was just going to say john remind me if i'm um uh, correct me if i'm if i'm wrong but uh, i think at the time that the family lived in the uh, on the oakley ranch uh that your dad was actually actively reading uh, Weird Tales magazine at the time yep. uh, with Lovecraft, with uh, Clark Ashton Smith and, and a whole bunch of other people in there. So that may or may, may have may not have been contributing significantly to his development at, at, at the time. And I, I, I was also remember, uh, reminded of uh, when, when you and I drove over there a couple of years ago um, to look for the old ranch. So we found the uh, we found a plot of land, and uh, we found some vestiges of the uh, of the buildings which have which had been raised, and uh, but it was fenced off, and uh, 
the, the fun thing is we took some pictures and wandered around and then just as we climbed over the fence again to the, on our way to the car there was this enormous black bull coming out of the bushes <laughs> at the back of the plot so yeah he made a lucky escape there <laughs> it was pretty big <laughs> now, now something else that had, had come up kind of recently there was a, a discussion about how the term sword and sorcery was coined for the the works of howard to really describe what howard's conan stories were and i can't help but notice that dying earth is actually a subgenre of science fantasy and science fiction, which is which is something that I was wholly unaware of. Um, and while while some authors are mentioned as as precursors, like Clark Ashton Smith or even Byron and Shelley, it the uh, the subgenre really does kind of kick off with with your father's work. And I was I was curious. I don't know when that term was coined, when that, that genre began. I was wondering if you had any any kind of feedback or thoughts on it. No, I'm afraid I, I don't. Um, with just the, the comment that, that, that um, and this, this could partially explain why dad was never a great commercial success, but he, he never really, uh, I don't know, he didn't see himself as part of a, of, of a movement or a, or a, you know, or a, or a type or a, um, no, anyway, the answer to the question is no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't think he, we never really discussed it around here. I don't think he would have ever called it that he probably would have. He always wanted to be, uh, considered on his own terms. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm not a science fiction writer. I'm not a, I mean, I think that was fantasy. He had to acknowledge that it was fantasy. Um, but, but later on, he just wanted to be considered like a speculative, uh, anthropologist or something. Well, a speculative anthropologist. <laughs> um, did you have any interest uh, in your dad's work as, as a child while he was writing it? I, I read, um, some of my dad's stories. I'm sure I read the, uh, you know, the demon princess at an early age. I was, you know, the, the house was full of all these books and, and old pulps, you know, with these fascinating covers, you know, all these machines and, spacemen you know dashing spacemen and lovely ladies and and uh so i mean it was all it was all um interesting um but i didn't i didn't really come to really know uh the breadth of my dad's work until i was in my 20s and um started kind of going through all of the stories and and um and i didn't even read his mysteries until and by the way he wrote murder mysteries too which are pretty good um until sometime after that they kind of they kind of came last um, but, uh, I, I was, I think I, it was when I read his murder mysteries that I realized, wow, you know, he, he really is something, you know, because he, he could switch gears and do all this kind of different work. And very convincingly, um, people should, you know, if they, if they don't want to deal with dying earth sometime, and they just want something like to read, they should go and try one of his murder mysteries, like, uh, Fox Valley murders or Pleasant Grove murders. If I, if I recall, didn't, didn't he win an Edgar award for like, uh, best First mystery. Yeah, Kun, you're, not you'll know the answer to that more accurately than I will. Good. Take it away. Kun. Oh yeah. Was that? Yeah, that's yeah, a yes. Yeah. yeah, but his awards. Uh, yes, he, he did win the Edgar for best first story, um, but uh, <clears throat> um, I forgot which one. <laughs> was it? Was it Man in the Cage? Thing? Yeah, or, yeah, that's it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Which is and, not one um, of the best ones, actually, but it's yeah, still and, yeah, and actually. Um, um, Many of the mysteries uh, um, actually 
um, relate back to some of your dad's extensive uh, travels all over the planet, of course. Yeah. Uh, there's Man in the Cage, which has a setting in in the north uh, western Sahara in Morocco, uh, where uh, your dad and Norma traveled for a while. 1952. Um, yeah, there, there's the uh, the Deadly Isles in in the uh, South Pacific, in the South Pacific. Um, there's um, Strange People. Strange People. Yeah. yeah in Positano, yeah. on the Amalfi Coast in Italy. I mean, there, there's a lot of places that uh, occur. Uh, a decade later, perhaps, but still uh, with, with lots of detail and lots of uh, poignant um, description in, in, in the mysteries, which uh, may be an indication that also these travels have inspired him to a lot of things that uh, happen in the science fiction and the, and the fantasy, fantasy uh, stories, but uh, they are the most clearly um, present in the, uh, in the mysteries. Now, I had also read that, <laughs> that he wrote three stories um, under under Ellery Queen, and I was I was curious if there were any. You know, it, it doesn't sound like he would have, but were there any other pen names that were ever used that we should be keeping an eye out for? I think nothing that has not later been released under under you know Jack Vance. By the way, he wrote his murder mysteries as John Holbrook Vance. Yeah, but there were some pen names. I think early on he published as uh, what John Van C S E E. You know John Van C. Um, Peter Peter Held. Was oh yeah, Peter Held. Yeah, there were there were two or three, but they they have all been. Um, reincorporated in their original form uh, in in the Spatelite Press editions, uh, and the only the only one that uh, that is not published by Spatelite Press is actually the the uh, Ellery Queen uh, contributions uh, uh, for uh, for well technical reasons, legal reasons, whatever you want to call it. But that certainly, as a as a collector, gives me an idea of other things to keep a lookout for when I'm scanning uh, the bookshelves and used bookstores. That's, that I'm, is, I'm, that's, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid to say that uh, everything that's in the Spatelite Press uh, signature series, that's all there is, plus these three uh, Ellery Queen novels. So there but, haven't been any uh, unpublished things that you've dug up in the old garage? Yeah, well, there, <laughs> there are some things that, that, that exist, but that may or may not see the light of day at some point. Uh, without going into too much detail, uh, there's actually a surprising lot of, of, of poetry. Um, there is, um, and, and, and there are travel journals. Uh, oh, those would be fantastic. Yeah. We, we are working on them. We don't have a definite plan yet, but they would need a lot of, uh, of editing because they would also contain a lot of things that are, well, basically not not interesting for a reader. I mean, there, there are interesting episodes there, like uh, anecdotes from all over the planet, but uh, we, we need to edit those before we can decide what to do with it. Are those are those still in the, the sort of the, fa the family's personal possession or have they been donated to one of the, like I, I know there's an advanced archive at Boston University, is that correct? Yes, and I'm glad you asked the question because it was one of the things that, um, that I want to talk about and then forgot. Uh, we are, we are, um, we do have a lot of papers here at home still. Um, the, there's, a, there's a lot of, uh, there are some significant manuscripts back at the, at the Boston University. Um, and then I think, um, uh, Paul Allen had, has a bunch of stuff up, up, uh, you know, or, um, his estate has a bunch of stuff up in Seattle. 
Um, I asked them for a list of, of what they had and they, they wouldn't tell me. And they're like, well, that's not, not information we can give out. And I thought that's, that's nonsense. That's BS. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, but we have a lot of stuff here at home. Um, and then there's a lot of little bits and pieces of dad's manuscripts and, and so on just floating around in, in the collector community. Surprising amounts of, of stuff, actually. You know, we, we hear every now and then about somebody having a manuscript for, you know, one of the Demon Prince stories, you know, the second draft or whatever. But but we do have a lot of things here still. And um, we are, uh, uh, I'm working with um, with a, a young man named Billy Cryer, who is an archivist um, who uh, periodically comes out and spends some time here um, going through the, the files and, and um, putting things into acid-free folders. And, and we're trying to figure out what to do with photographs now. Um, but our, I mean, my goal really is to not have to take care of all these boxes of, of mm. paper. You know, I think the stuff is precious um, and I, I would never, ever, um, you know, let it, let it be not taken care of. But what I'd really like to do is have somebody else take care of it. So I don't have to take care of it. But I still want to be able to look at it. So the goal really is to scan all this stuff um, and then uh, have a gigantic, um, uh, you know, scan archive of, of all of my dad's papers. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a project that's going on. Um, I've tried to stir up more interest in Boston, Mark, um, mm -hmm. you know, out there trying to get people to say, yes, yes, we'll, we'll take care of the rest of those things. But, you know, dad is just not in vogue. He's, he's not, he's not fashionable. Um, and, and the world's a crazy place and they've got other priorities maybe. Um, so, so far they're not, they're not coming back to us for that. That's hard to believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's that, that there is this effort that you, the, in the long term, that that would be something that gives access to, you know, to future, you know, uh, you know, authors or researchers, and hopefully it's somebody that'll see, uh, you know, an archival, per, you know, preservation of it. So, well, our offer, um, if there's any any, uh, you know, curators out there who are listening. Um, um, our offer was uh, to um, to you know install our hard copy you know in their collection, um, uh, and and then also give them a copy ultimately of, of the big digital um, archive that encompasses everything. And in fact, that was the pitch I made to Boston, which was you know um, if you will allow us to come out and scan those things in your archive, then we will donate the rest of our hard copy to you and we will give you a copy of all the scans of both and i thought that that was pretty irresistible uh, yeah but, yeah uh, well, hopefully there are uh, this this continues to you know spread the word and and these kind of projects are also reinvigorating some of the interest in in your father's works yep well, and I, I know that it's been it's been harder and harder to get libraries to take collections like that in a lot of ways because because it, it certainly is you know the upkeep is is certainly work but i i think that's a pretty good offer and i've got friends in boston that used to work in the library system maybe i should have them lean on them a little bit please do that's you know or or any other i mean having having a collection like that in a in a university that's i mean that's one of the things that head librarians of university libraries do is they look for ways to expand their collections and i i can't believe that that uh, we can't find a university that would uh, i'll talk to my my local uh university library the harry ransom center which has the uh the howard uh uh manuscripts and archive that we well, have that here in austin so <laughs> maybe that library collection in houston 
you know, library collections is in Houston. So, yeah, Texas will aggregate all of this. <laughs> Lovecraft, Lovecraft at the Hay. So, yeah, uh, because because the preservation of that sort of thing is is really important. Is. And, you know, the the idea that all of the the, the physical, you know, artifacts from the from the collection to be in one place for for real in-depth research but having a digital archive so none of it is lost i think that's really important mm -hmm. that's yeah that's i'm just going to take a moment yeah ponder that and and drool for a minute because my inner archivist is just no <laughs> I, 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 we are not, a, we are not a, a, a research library, Jen. So I, I yes. understand that, that yes. we don't follow. I understand. <laughs> Give us time. And I only have so much garage space anyway. No, I, I, I get that. I get that. I, we, we would have to definitely relocate. Darn. Um, all right. So we have a life goal now. Thank you, John. Um, <laughs> now let me let me ask this: because while we're thinking of, while we're thinking of dying Earth. Um, I know there were two two authorized stories that were written by Michael Shea, and uh, I, I think one one was like a, a novel or, or like a short novel, and the other was I think a short story. And I know that the the first eventually got retconned, but I'm curious beyond beyond them being authorized, what was the the general feeling about those stories? Are they are they a, a nice kind of companion piece to to your father's work? Are they are they jarringly different? What is what are your thoughts? I just I just reread Shay's um, uh, quest for Symbolis or Symbolis um, uh, not too long ago, like a year ago or so, and it really I thought it was really good. He he was a good author, um, smart guy, um, good good use of the language, um, quite fancy in, in in a lot of ways. At least for the first part of the book, I, I think in the second half of the book, it, it, it went off in his own direction, which was still good, but it wasn't it wasn't um, as fancy and um, as as the first part of the book. Um, I don't I don't know the short story unless it was. See, uh, there is one, but we we haven't seen it, I believe. Okay, it was uh, Hugh the Tint Master. Oh, yeah, I haven't read that. Yeah, but it was good. It was worth reading. Um, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I have to say that when when I first read uh, Quest for Symbolis, um, um, it didn't really uh, tr trigger with me because um, because it was my first Michael Shea that I read, and I was expecting, as it was announced on the cover, to to be a Dying Earth sequel and the next Google book, which it is not. Um, after that, I read a lot of other Michael Shea books. His his Nif the Lean books are fabulous, and as you say, John, he is also a master of language. Uh, and I really love those. And when I recently reread Quest for Symbolis, when we have pub published it ourselves on, on Spatulite Press, uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot more because I was not reading it as a uh, Google the Clever uh, sequel, but as a Michael Shea book. He took the idea and he went his own way with it. And it's it's much more, it's much darker. Uh, it's much more about demons and stuff, which is typical Shea uh, than it is fans, but it's really good. That brings me to the Songs of the Dying Earth collection. Um, is there any possibility of getting that into the Spatterlight purview or no, because there's so many different publication houses involved? I don't really know the answer. We've talked about that, Kuhn, but it's uh, it, it might be a little complicated. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be very complicated because 
uh, because there's uh, there's uh, dozens of authors and their estates involved. And uh, I really admire uh, George Martin and, and Garnet Dozois for pulling it off at the time. Uh, but I don't think we want to be doing that. And, and the reason why we don't want to be doing that is because both John and myself we we have we have day jobs. We uh, we take care <laughs> of the legacy. We take care of the legacy of, of Jack Vance as good as we may. But, but there are limits, and and doing something like that is uh, is an order of magnitude larger than, for example, republishing a Michael Shea novel. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. Keep it in the category of homage, then. I'm curious if um, even even beyond uh, the purview of Spiderlight, has there ever been discussion of a second book of that sort? Mm. I kind of feel as though though um, well, I yeah, I mean, I think there was a moment when Dad was um, just you know candidly nearing the end of his life um, when when it was the right time for people to come out and and uh, and you know do the homage um but um but i don't think i think they've all moved on you know we've we've you know they did it it's done it's in the past i don't think they're going to do it again understand there's there's just there's so much there's so much meat in in the dying earth and uh, it's interesting it's interesting to read other people's takes on it but i don't think any of them really none of them hit a home run right none, none of them get it fully the way the way well your father did because he, he created it but it's it's always some interesting reading and and think about think about reading and editions jen why don't you talk about maps Oh, I was I was actually hoping to uh, forget about that one. Um, (laughs) Do do any of the translated versions of the Dying Earth include official maps? And we'll put official in air quotes. Uh, Not to my knowledge, no. Uh, There have been some maps that were made by uh, by fans that 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 were um, contributions to the um, uh, the collection that we hold on uh, that we host on JackFans.com. So on on www.jackfans.com, there's a a, a section saying fan contribution or something, and and there are some people who have actually attempted to to do dying earth maps, and uh, well, what we what we got is in there. Uh, I don't personally have uh, every translated edition edition here in the house. I think I would be kicked out the door if I would. Um, and um, th- there's, there's been no official maps of it. So, so if any translated edition has a map, it's probably because the, um, the, the publisher thought it was necessary to add one, and they just did that. And, and the, the versions of the publications of the books that do have maps, the English versions that were published you know, before the, the BIE, those were not Vance's no. Your, our, your father's works they were just the publishers working exactly. or did, or did. Yeah. The, 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 I, I realize that there is a map probably in the um in the other miller edition of uh of the yeah. first google book there's a there's yeah, a total I, I, I of two yeah. there, there, there is a map in there but that was not based on anything that we have in the in the archives isn't it joe it, it's your i i don't actually know i mean if so the maps oh. are a lovely yeah yeah, they're, they're, a, they're a lovely um, topic. And because, um, you know, we do have these odd scraps of paper floating around sometimes like with a corner ripped off 
um, and with, you know, all kinds of different colored inks on there and these kind of hazy outlines and pencil and these barely legible scribbles, you know, of, of names and crossed out and changed. Um, they're really treasures. Um, but I don't, I don't, remember us having one for dying earth that was a long time ago you know i don't think that kept 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 any item yeah. map in that period yeah and, and, and frankly I, I don't think there is one or or there is no surviving one because if there would have been one it would have been incorporated into the vie edition and there is no okay. and there's no manuscripts from that period either i think dad um in those early days he would write things he was very very cavalier about you know stuff you know like his papers didn't mean anything to him um and i think he just threw them away Hmm. And we have stories that are written on the back of old manuscripts from a previous story, um, you know, where he's just using the paper. Paper was valuable. He didn't want to waste it. Even, even on the back of your French homework, isn't it, Dom? <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, or like my algebra practice, you know, when I was in the <laughs> traveling. It's like, yeah, some of that. Yeah. I, I, I was just reminded that um, uh, my wife and I have been doing. Uh, a, a lot of work around the house as always. And we demolished an old wall here not too long ago. And we found a piece of paper and there was a, it was a page from a manuscript. Um, and I don't think we've identified what story it was yet, but on the back of it, it says, please knock before entering. In big <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-party, pre-party, uh, you know, preparation or, or maybe, you know, delivery men or something. Who knows? I don't know. Well, and your parents did do quite a bit of entertaining, didn't they? Oh, we had, they, there was a period, um, and I'm, they were, they were very gregarious. It was, you know, Bob, I, I kind of wonder if it wasn't something to do with, with the, the age, you know, and, and with the, with the time, um, because, you know, people certainly entertain these days, but there was something so relaxed and, and easy about, um, those gatherings there. And, uh, you know, they were very organic, you know, people would bring their friends and bring their kids and, you know, occasionally bring their pets, you know, but um, <laughs> I'm just joking about that. Uh, but yes, um, they, they knew quite a few folks. They, they, they knew the local writer community. Um, they were, you know, they were friends, um, you know, with Herbert's and with, with the Anderson's um, the big names around here, um, Silverberg. Um, but, but they just, they would just throw parties and, and their friends would throw parties and, and they'd cook, you know, spend the day cooking a big, you know, uh, casserole of enchiladas, you know, or, or something. And, and, um, and then just open the door and people would stroll in and there was music playing and, and, you know, jugs of red wine around and, and, um, and, and in fact, people brought, um, instruments and, and, uh, dad was kind of peripherally involved with, with actually, um, a couple little, skiffle bands you know little jazz little jazz jam sessions up here um but uh yeah those those were very colorful times there was you know in the 60s that was you know we you'd, you'd have some long-haired folks showing up even you know and and uh, my parents were not part of that they were they were um on the outside of the of the long-haired um uh you know movement <laughs> if you will but uh we're, they're always very open and friendly and and uh, lots of colorful people Lots of good times. Wow. And so uh, what instruments did your father play? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, he he um, he was best on the harmonica, interestingly. And it was a, it was one of his grammar school teachers, apparently, that he credits with teaching him how to play the harmonica. How you know, that's a story in itself. Um, but 
he was pretty good on the harmonica, um, but his the instrument that he um, picked up most often was a little banjo ukulele or a ukulele essentially, um, and he um, he uh, that probably started in the I don't know the early seventies or something like that that he that he started taking an interest in that and he you know wrote down his little uh, cheap cheap books you know or whatever a little full of chords and things like that and and he'd accompany himself with a kazoo um and uh he'd get a, a coat hanger and bend himself a little kazoo holder that was on the neck of his of his banjo and he was really serious about this i mean he he belt those old mini the mermaid and you know five foot two eyes of blue he'd belt those things out with gusto and then he'd take a break and he'd reach over and grab a kazoo and rrr, 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 you know it was uh he, you know he would do that um without any um without restraint and so Kind of probably made friends and lost friends, you know, kind of equal measure. Uh, I'm just joking. That's uh, but he played, played ukulele, ukulele, kazoo, um, and uh, and uh, like harmonica. Those were his instruments. And the jug, you know, I'm not sure if you guys are aware that the jug is a is a good oh, yeah. Piece. yeah. <laughs> now, if someone if someone is asking if someone's asking about um, something that I I I know absolutely nothing about. Um, they're they're curious about the lone movie made to date um, from from a Vance book, uh, Bad Ronald. Oh yeah, they, they wanted to know if he was involved with the production, if he was excited about it, indifferent. I think he was excited about um, about uh, you know putting the the check in the bank, um, you know, which wouldn't have been too much um, by today's standards, but but it was uh, but it was good. Um, uh, no, he had no no involvement. They didn't ask any questions that I know. It's a pretty good story. It's 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 a it's a scary one. And in fact, well, the thing is that, that I think Universal now. Well, it was originally Lorimar, I think, that owned the that, that bought the picture and produced the, the. It was a movie for television, by the way, not not for the big screen. Um, and uh, I've I've actually seen it. You can you can dig it out. I think if you go to YouTube or something, you can find a copy of it. But it's the movie. The TV movie was pretty good pretty good but they denatured it quite a bit um the 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 book itself is uh is a little bit harder hitting um real creepy it's about a guy who who um who uh just sort of act he's kind of a creepy guy but he accidentally um um leads to the death of this girl this young girl and his mother is hyper protective single mom she um she finds she knows that the police are coming so she finds a a place under the stairs where she builds a little place and, and secretes him away and says that he ran away, don't know where he left, you know, don't know where he, where he is. But then she gets sick and she dies. And, and another family moves in with, um, you know, anyway, it's interesting story. It, it, it's interesting thing of artifacts. Someone, uh, Clayliford is on our uh, viewers, is, is very excited because he wasn't aware that Bad Ronald was a Vance story, but he has a 16 millimeter print of the movie. Really? Yes. Oh. And, uh, uh, and uh, he, he he implies that it was maybe made for TV, but he saw it in the theater, and that it's out on DVD. And yes, oh. he says I do. I've got it on sixteen millimeter. Um, it, it is, and actually, it was made for uh, for TV. It's out on DVD, and uh, two or three years back, it was uh, re-released in a uh, slightly cleaned up uh, Blu-ray edition. So it's available in rather good quality. And uh, that that's the first movie adaptation. There was a second one in the. 80s or early 90s, I believe, by a French production company, which I have never seen, but it seems to exist. So mm. it's, the, it's the only fans book that there's been two movie ad adaptations of. 
Really? There was there was one other story too, just on this on this vein here. Um, they was uh, like um, uh, there was a man of the cage, man in the cage. It was Karloff. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that show called? It was a serial oh. thing. It was a thriller. Thriller. Yeah, yeah. 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 There was yeah. a thriller. Yeah. Episode, thriller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was not aware of that. And and actually, Clayford has has even clarified that he works with the American Genre Film Association, and they have a thirty five millimeter print of it. Really. Cool. Yeah, it's in the vault at the Alamo Draft House South, Lamar in Austin. See, see, more more stuff is ending up collected in Texas. <laughs> we just need to start start hitting the, uh, the the Texas University libraries. That's yeah. uh, that for me. <laughs> but I did not know there was a thriller episode, and I'm and, and it makes me wonder if if that episode still exists. I know a lot of thriller episodes vanished over the years, just like old television. It's on it's it's on YouTube. It, it rather okay, so it does still exist. Yeah. It's a little underwhelming. Um, it's not. Uh, it's pretty uh, Thriller yeah. kind of was overall uh, yeah. a lot of times. So they, they they adapted some great stuff. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it wasn't. But Boris Karloff got a paycheck. So so that was. <laughs> um, you know, if getting getting back to kind of just the the overall f- passion involved with with collecting your father's works and restoring your father's works. Uh, there, Kuhn told me something that absolutely fascinated me, and and I think that uh, a number of our listeners might also be interested um, as, that there was a font created for uh, one of the sets of editions, and a lot of work went into that font. And I would I would uh, I would ask that that Kuhn indulge me a little bit and and tell our viewers a, a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, it's 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 something that was mentioned. Briefly before, I think maybe John, you you just mentioned that at the beginning of this chat. Um, so so when the Vance Integral edition kicked off, uh, it was under the uh, under the uh, inspiring leadership of our editor in chief uh, Paul Rhodes. Paul Rhodes was actually is uh, an American uh, artist who lives in France. Um, he uh, he paints, he sculpts, he composes music for. Uh, I've heard some cello quartets or no single. Um, well, cello solo works uh, from his hand. He, he, he mainly paints and sculpts, actually. Uh, and, uh, and he has a passion for Vance, and he believes that Vance is one of the most underrated uh, literary authors of the entire planet. Um, so uh, Paul was the uh, driving force behind the, um, uh, the, the creative part of the VIE and also the managerial part. And Paul had the decision of um, publishing the entire works of Vance in, in an edition that uh, that would look like classic literature. For for example, if you would look at the volumes of the shelf, it, it might look like a, a 19th century deluxe edition of the, the complete works of, uh, of uh, I was going to say Tolstoy, but I don't know if he lived back then. Anyway, so it was supposed to look to look classic and classy and, and, and easily readable. And uh, Paul took care of all the visual aspects of the of, of the design of the set of the, of the books and also of the of the font paul uh invested a lot of time in uh in, in investigating uh classical uh typefaces from the middle ages until uh, until now and uh from all these classical typefaces he distilled one uh, that that we actually started calling uh, amiante uh, after one of the characters in in the novel inferior by fans um 
and Amiante was uh, was designed by Paul Rhodes, by our editor in chief and, and and resident artist, to be uh, the font that would allow you to read Vans uh, in in more in the most easy way. So it it would not have any features that uh, that 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 were jarring that would distract from from the reading, so to speak. So when Paul was designing this font, um, he had to uh, he had to know at some point which special characters were appearing. Uh, like which diacritics were appearing, which uh, uh, oddballs uh, were appearing. And um, other than just waiting for the books to be uh, set in uh, in our composition tools in in, uh, in in Quark Express or in InDesign and, and, and have a question from one of the composers like, hey, we're missing this or that bit here. Can, can you just design this up front? Uh, th that's, that's how I got involved because uh, I was a programmer in those days and uh, I figured I could just take all the existing texts and um, extract that information from it and feed it back to Paul Rhodes so that he could design his fault and it would be complete and nothing would be missing. So just to clarify for our viewers and listeners, you wrote a piece of software that went through the collected works of, of Jack Vance and determined exactly which which characters were used, what was I yeah, what was used in italics, bold. Yep. And that 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 almost seems like Vancey and magic in and of itself. Uh <laughs> I, I, I think it's from those days that I that I retained the the, the honorific of a laughing mathematician actually. <laughs> Bob I want to add that um that in terms of um, passion and um, and uh, willingness to um, um, express um, opinions, there's nothing like the crowd who is obsessed with fonts. Um, to <laughs> to uh, you know, they there there was practically. I mean, blood was almost shed over over this the, the use of this font with with people getting really 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 annoyed that we were not just using you know insert your favorite font. Um, you know, here, um, and it was, it was, uh, the, the VIE, I have to say, was a very, very tumultuous project. Um, there was a, there was a, it wasn't, it wasn't smooth sailing. Um, and the use of Amiante was one of the early, the early, the early, uh, battle, battlefields, but, um. I can only imagine what it would have been like if they had wanted to use Comic Sans. Um. <laughs> Now, that, 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 that might have been an easier discussion, Bob. Oh wow, that's <laughs> wow. What? That that was heated then, wasn't it? Exactly. And how long of a project was that from from start to print? When you mentioned we started in uh, like the the very early discussions. I think Paul yeah. visited us in '99, yeah. and then you, we, yeah. we published the second wave in in uh, 2005. In 2005, yes, exactly. So it, was it felt really, like 10 years. Yes, now more like six, seven years old in all. Yeah. <laughs> for, the, for the size of the work, that's actually a really impressive turnaround, considering, Mark, when did we start working on the on DCC Dying Earth again? Uh, it was late 2017, and then we we probably finished the initial draft of all the, the project in 2019, so a little over a little over a year and a half for, for the work that we were doing, including like play testing and, and, and doing that before, you know, sending it off to, to the Goodman games folks for uh, getting ready for the publication and then getting interrupted by, um, you know, COVID and things like that, which delayed obviously the, the Kickstarter, which we're just now getting to. So. 
Just thinking, well, four funny. times that amount of time, we could have just. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we could have just. What we're doing with all that time, you know. <laughs> and so now I feel like an underachiever. That Amiante font took the place of all of the text throughout the entire series. Great. Yeah, there, there, there was there were some variations. There there were some special Amianti variations for uh, uh, for printing text on on the on the book spines, for example, or or on the title pages. Um, and and there, there were some additional fonts that were used in special areas. Like uh, Vance likes to uh, likes to um, uh, to tell us what what's posted on signs somewhere in his stories. And sometimes these signs or, or messages have a special font design for it. But um, I have to be frank to um, uh, to circle back to our signature series, the Spatulite Press Edition. Uh, we, we simplified these things a little bit, and we, we opted for a more standard um, a more standard set of fonts, uh, basically settling down on one called uh, Arno Pro, uh, which we thought um, exhibits a lot of the. Um, good characteristics that we want to see in the font. Uh, just to give you one single example, uh, um, you have commas in a text and, and there's also apostrophes. And um, one thing that I particularly do not like is that the commas and the apostrophes are identical because then you could have a sentence with a comma in it and on the, one, on the line below there would be an apostrophe and it would sort of look the same. I, I find that jarring so so we, we specifically looked at five or six different font options and we picked one that has all these features that were distinct so you can actually read it smoothly and not be distracted from the story from the language <laughs> i I'm, i cannot think of another author that has their own font <laughs> i i can't I, I i i challenge anyone to find one actually that's that, that I think that really speaks to the passion that that your father's work evokes in in its readership. Um, you know, Jen Jen sort of compared the the Vancians with an E to the the Sherlockians who were rabid, rabid to the point of dangerous <laughs> um, about all, all all things Holmes and the the kind of the kind of passion that it, that it surrounds. You know, the dying earth and my my personal favorite actually is the last castle that is that is by far and away my my favorite event story i i, I love it really? yes and i will i will die on that hill i will um, <laughs> and i i i think that the more the more people that can get exposed to it today the the more that will spread i i think that we we live in an age where since pop culture never goes away anymore right it just it 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 stays it stays on the internet and people start picking up pieces i think we we live in an age where jack vance can finally get his due as an author because now he will never go out of print now it is easier for people to to talk back and forth about the stories they love or the use of the language and and so hope hopefully this is going to be you know, really the beginning of, of a golden age because as prolific as an author as he was it is kind of astonishing sometimes that more people don't know his work well we, we hope you're right there bob um and it's uh you know, I think 
one of the big motivations for Kuhn and myself and and our you know our wonderful you know friends who have who've pitched in to make these modern developments possible um, is simply the uh, the desire to make sure that Dad's work doesn't doesn't um, just fade away and um, the uh, I, I thought that I would share a little bit with you about why another part of the reason that we started or, or, or why, you know, why mechanically it is that um, particular authors tend to fade away. Um, and, and I'll try to make this really quick, but, but the idea is that, you know, authors typically don't represent themselves. They, they will, um, they will have agents and an agent is, um, you know, often a, a very splendid individual. Um, there's there's nothing wrong with agents as a species, um, but they are they exist and they have a job, and their job is to make money, put food on the table, so they can put their kids, you know, in the private schools and, or just you know go see a movie. But um, when when an author is either not very popular or or stops producing work, then the agent doesn't have uh, you know, they, they work with the publishers and publishers are interested in, in also making money. Um, and uh, if the author uh, is either not popular or isn't producing new work, then gradually it gets harder and harder for the agent to sell um, the work to a publisher. Um, and with dad's work, what was happening was, you know, dad wrote, you know, 60 some odd titles or whatever it is. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of books, but what was happening was that the only contracts that we were getting were for dad's better known stories, Princess of Dying Earth or the Demon Princess or whatever, but for longer and longer terms. And, and ultimately the, uh, the publishers would not give us a contract unless they had ebook rights as well. And, and you know, the, the truth of it is that, that with some, some effort, I mean, a person can make an ebook of themselves. They don't, they don't need to have, you know, to enlist, um, you know, right. a gigantic mechanism to make a, an ebook. Um, so in other words, it became unfavorable, uh, and, and, and most of dad's stories were just not big enough and important enough to be, to be printed any longer. So that was, um, but it's, it's, it's a lesson for any, any of these older, you know, the estates of any of these older authors, um, that they simply can, and I mean, with absolutely no ill will, I mean, I think you, you have to acknowledge the fact that you cannot rely on your agents to, um, to keep your your estate your your parents work alive because they, there's nothing in it for them. At the end of the day, <laughs> like Google, they're looking out for themselves first. They have to, <laughs> have to. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's interesting though that a lot of like my introduction to advance was via this you know the role playing sort of community genre because that that was obviously like an inspiration or sort of an integral point that I think a lot of it's interesting that that's an experience or a, a, an avenue for, I think that going forward is always going to be associated with dance in particular, you know, as part of this sort of genesis of, you know, the early days of role-playing. And that's, that seems to be a community that continually sort of has, you know, reinvention, re sort of like, you know, you know, the new interests, new generations. Like it's, it's, it seems like that's a, that's a, for my own personal experience. And that's another way that dance can be sort of appreciated and continued and then once you start with that, you know, that vector, then obviously sort of spreading out from there into the other works and the other sort of creation. So I hope that, you know, that that continues and certainly something that I hope that I can instill in my own kids, you know, my sort of appreciation and that that becomes that, you know, their, their avenue to these kind of authors that otherwise, if they're not current, you know, they're sort of seen as older, older. authors that don't necessarily have a lot of like 
you know relevance uh, relevance to that to you know to new new people new 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 you know new readers um but they always have to sort of like tie into something that you know the community continues to to propagate so yeah well i think i think it's um you know naturally i'm extremely biased here but i think that the dad's work um a lot of it it remains surprisingly relevant and and he uh you know he it's just anyway there's a lot of reasons for it but uh, you know the one thing that would you know we need we need a spark you know we need we need something um so that all the work that Kunin and our friends and, and and i have done to keep dad's work available it's like making sure that the fuel is there so that so that when the spark comes it actually you know, um, can, can go somewhere. Um, but, but to bring dad's work to that critical level, that threshold where, where enough people talk about it, that it really grows, I think is going to take something on the screen, not to diminish the importance of the role-playing community, which, you know, is, is wonderful and lovely and, and, you know, thank goodness for it. But we're just one facet of the fandom, right? Yeah. 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 We have a question about, um, is it Linus, Linus? There's no wrong pronunciation. I'll go with Leoness around the house. Leoness. Someone someone is a huge Leoness fan and wants to know if there were any other stories beyond just the trilogy. No. Short answer. So reread them is the the answer there. Yeah, wait a year and start over. Now, in the in the uh, collect in the collected works from Spatter, how many volumes are there? 62. We, we published the integral edition in 62 volumes. Mm-hmm. So two bookshelves. And the 62nd is the, uh, the autobiography, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yes, it is. Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a two volumes dangling at the end, which is the autobiography. And there's also the uh, a volume of unpublished and, and unfinished uh Drafts and synopsis of of stories. Okay. Uh, oh, so, so there is wild, okay. wild time and violets and other exactly. unpublished works. Yeah. I'm on it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why don't we already have that book in our library? I see. This is this is the, the uh, sixty-two. We're yeah, we've got that one. Um, real quick, I was wondering, John, how did your father feel about being included in Appendix N? Or, or in was he aware in the list of you know these are the masters who influenced the very first role playing game that spawned its own movement. Well, um, I'm not sure he was even aware. To be perfectly honest with you, I mean, it, he he did pass away in 2013, um, and uh, and you know I know there was quite a bit of stuff happening before that. I think I think he was aware that that. Um, that that you know obviously I mean Gygax was uh, a name around here for a while that kind of floated around um, you know early on um, and I think we have a at least one piece of correspondence with Gary from from back then um, but uh, I think I don't know Dad was just occupied with a lot of other things Jen I, I'm not I'm not sure that he really knew to be honest so you had no personal relationship to RPGs or or anything in the role playing industry at I, that point. I, I I feel really um, guilty saying the answer. No, 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 don't. No, not at all. No. <laughs> I think the purpose behind projects like this is to kind of blend the Venn diagrams. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, as you know, from this Kickstarter, we have a lot of people saying, oh, I haven't actually read Dying Earth yet. And, you know, honestly, before this project, I hadn't dug my feet too deeply into it either. Um, We've also got fans of the Dying Earth that say, okay, I'll give this game a try and we'll see if it does advance justice. And... (laughs) Yeah, I mean... You know, role playing role playing fandom is is just one facet of fandom, but yeah, it's you know the name Jack Vance is is mentioned almost from the very beginning of of what has become right just a a, a massive entertainment movement in in a number of of uh, mediums, and I think I think that's that's really important for for people to remember. Uh, it's how how key and and what a cornerstone Jack Vance's work has been to what has has, has grown because you can certainly see his his influence in the works of of other authors even today. Yes, Jen, Jen I, w- I was triggered by your mentioning of of, of blending the Venn diagrams earlier. Uh, it is something that we see out there. Uh, we, we have recently uh, entered agreements with two publishers in, in South America, one in Brazil and, and one in uh, Argentina. Uh, and and uh, Sorry, uh, no, not Argentina. Uh, John, how do you pronounce that? Chile? Chile. Yeah, exactly. So, so two publishers down there who are actually RPG publishers uh, wanted to uh, release the books actually for, uh, uh, for their readership. So um, this is in the works as we speak. Was um, in in Brazil? Was it? Um, no. You know, was it uh, Sagan Editoria by any chance? Uh, no, Sagan it was not. No, or, or uh, yeah. Because I, I know there's there's a a game publisher. I I think that's who it is. There's a game publisher in Brazil that actually has a DCC license, and so I'm I'm curious if they're looking at at then doing a future translation of of this. To, to complement those, but it's it's wonderful either way. There's well, that's going to complicate uh, things. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, and I've been I've been talking to a number of people from the Brazilian DCC community because you, mm-hmm. you can in the internet age, and a lot of them are are either unfamiliar or just starting to become familiar. So being able to being if them being able to actually lay hands on those works eventually is going to be wonderful. I think. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't remember the name of the publisher off, off the top of my head, but I know that the, the first book should be coming out shortly. So uh, the, the original Dying Earth stories, uh, also known as, in our edition, Missouri and the Magician, uh, is coming out in Portuguese in Brazil uh, soon. That's that's fantastic. I, uh, I, and I'm going to happily let, let uh, those those Brazilian gamers know that. That's, that's going to be really nice for them. Um, now, now, I know we've taken a lot of your time, and I know it's starting to get late over there. It's yeah. <laughs> you doing good? <laughs> I want to make sure you're still okay because it's it's what almost eleven there now. Well, yeah, no, almost ten o'clock. It's oh. it's, it's, getting, it's getting slightly dark outside, but hey, uh, it's it's football night, and uh, I don't care about about football, so uh, I'm here. <laughs> Wow. Let's see here. I want to see if we've got any other questions that have come up. Um, and actually, while I'm doing that, uh, John, you've I'm, 
I know that that you've had a chance to to look over the the DCC RPG material for for Dying Earth. Um, how involved? Because as as one of the writers of the project, I don't know how involved is how's the estate been in that process. Is it is it just a case of you look you look over the manuscripts for approval? Um, what is what is that process been? Or is it a trade secret? <laughs> no, no, it's not a trade secret. Um, really, I think I think that we are, um, you know, gathering uh, a sense more of what the what the, what the big picture is on on the, um, you know, on the on the game and and on the book, um, and not so much, you know, reading a lot. I mean, you know, uh, poking in here and there and and checking it out and and um, enjoying it, you know, and and enjoying the artwork. Um, but we haven't really been involved beyond that. I have to I have to add that certainly on my side there's there's been a lot of ooing and eyeing uh, when I saw your your draft of the uh, the book on Vancian with an eye magic uh, because because you know when when you, when you read these stories there's mention of of all these magicians and these spells from 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 time to time uh, uh, but you don't get the big picture and and the way you guys have uh, have uh, taken all that stuff apart and 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 poured it into a uh, an understandable mechanism it makes total sense to me but i have i had to see it in your uh, manual first before i got the picture so you you got you guys really did a great job at that well and i've just been ooing and eyeing a lot over the cover art so because wow. <laughs> <Fun. laughs> it is fun to see all the different or artistic interpretations over the years not just with you know the what we're publishing but just going back to uh, the original pulp you know short trades and in those covers and just seeing the different interpretations, especially across languages, you know, where there's been a lot of, again, sort of inspiring passion. So not, not just, it's, it's fun to kind of peruse that and kind of go, and I wonder if there'll ever be sort of like a collection, like an integral collection of art, you know, similar to the, the text itself, but. Um, are there, are there favorite cover artists from the past, from, uh, from the Vance works? Um, John, I, I don't know about you, but, but, but uh, not specifically cover art, but uh, when we were preparing our, our um, Spatelite Press editions, um, uh, we talked about the idea of including some of the, uh, some of the original uh, artwork for interior illustrations that uh, Stephen Fabian produced back in the day. And, uh, and, and I had the idea of looking him up and, hey, uh, Stephen Fabian was still pretty much alive, so we made an, uh, an arrangement with him that we could reprint his illustrations. And the uh, uh, the, the two Google books and the uh, Rialto the Marvelous books in our Spatlight Press series uh, contain all the available Stephen Fabian interior illustrations, and I think they are just marvelous. For me, they they um, oh. they, uh, they epitomize the, the the atmosphere of these stories. Uh, as to cover art, um, uh, I've always been very partial to. Uh, uh, actually, that was also Stephen Fabian's uh, cover for the the Eyes of the Overworld, the Underwood Miller uh, edition. Um, other than those, uh, John, do, do you have any favorites? Well, I think I have a lot of favorites, um, and I, so I, I couldn't put a finger on any of them. Um, but uh, I mean, there's also been some rather 
you know, less less than wonderful. There's been some lackluster covers. <laughs> that's that's putting it nicely. There's there, there's one that's like just a photograph of a satellite in space that that seems to have no connection to anything. No, I I understand. Yeah, I was thinking dying of, yeah. of a a, a, a Spanish edition of um, the Palace of Love, which one of the Demon Prince stories, um, which I won't go into, but it's it's just so laughable, you know. Um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of uh, Funny things as well. But I think the satellite was not one of the worst. <laughs> that's wow. That's terrifying. I'm, I just want to say, as 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 a person that buys books, I'm sorry. Uh, that's just no. That's, yeah. that's just not right. I, I'm um, not sure that the artists always read, you know, the stories. No. Or or, or what's um, you know potentially even worse is when they only read part of the story and then they interpret, you know a lot from that small part that they read and, and, um, you know, kind of get some of it right. And a lot of it wrong. Uh, we have a, we have a question here. Um, because you mentioned that, uh, that your father didn't really see himself as a, as a fantasy author or a science fiction author. He was the Jack Vance. He was just Jack Vance, the author. Mm-hmm. Um, but was there a, a particular work of which that, that he was, that he was really proud of? Is there, there one, did he have a favorite story of his? I, I, that's, um, that's a fun question. And he didn't, he didn't, uh, analyze, uh, too much. Uh, in fact, he was really reluctant to talk about his, his work. Um, and in the family, it was a little different. I mean, he, he was, you know, obviously didn't have, had quite so much reserve. Um, but, uh, even so, I don't, I don't think, I don't think he would have had a favorite. I know that, that he was, he was proud, however, of, of his, um, of, of Leoness and um, and he really enjoyed Kugel a lot. He he and so I know he's proud of of his um, you know of his Dying Earth um, work. Um, he I think he was less proud, honestly, of the of his early Dying Earth work, the you know the original Dying Earth book. Um, and I was always puzzled by that, and I never really got a super great answer out of him. I think he I think he felt like it was you know. It was a little bit immature somehow in a particular way that 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 he was sensitive to, um, but uh, but I, but obviously it's he's wrong. And in fact, Paul Paul Rhodes read read some of um read some of the that early work back to my dad when my dad was um, quite old, and and dad sat there listening. He's like, oh, "That's pretty good." <laughs> I think he by, by the time he reaches nineties, you know, he he essentially. Kind of because he never reread his work, never reread his work. Um, so he produced his stuff, sent it out, it was published, but that was, um, he never went back and, and reread his work. So he, you know, he could be forgiven for not remembering what he wrote when he was, you know, 40 something at the age of, you know, 90, you know, 95. Yeah, he made it to 90. Yeah. yeah, no. Now, um, uh, as, a, as a follow up question from, from another viewer, what works would you recommend people focus on as sort of their gateway to dying earth or their gateway to Jack Vance? Where should they, st- what is, what is the, uh, the easiest entry point? Mm, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and there, and they really are two different questions. Um, you know, entry yeah. to dying earth and entry to Vance overall. Um, you know, Kuhn, you might want to help me with the entry to dying earth. Um, in fact, yeah. with both of these things, um, how, how about if I give it a go and then you give it a go? Um, go ahead. You first. Um, 
<laughs> so I think, um, well, I don't know, Jen, you kind of, you kind of hinted at this yesterday that sometimes it's, it's a little hard to break into Vance, you know, your first, your first approach, um, you, you, you kind of, you know, you run into a wall and, and you don't, you know, um, it's so, so a lot's going to depend on the reader, um, Bob, you know, I mean, not every reader is going to, is going to find that they, um, are entranced and, um, you know, addicted now, you know, to, to dying earth stuff, um, or Vance in general, but I would say the, I, I would say Rialto is pretty, is pretty accessible. Um, uh, you know, the Rialto, the marvelous, um, and, uh, and the second Kugel book, um, you know, Kugel saga or, uh, the Spatterlight, uh, the Skybreak Spatterlight. Those are those are probably, but anyway, that's what with the rest of Vance. Um, there's so much to choose from. There, there's, but in in terms of um, like a really fun thing that's not too long is a short story called Dodkin's Job, um, which is just one of my favorites. It's 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 a, it's a man against bureaucracy, you know, and and there's more there's more to it than that. Um, that's a really good one. Um, Shay, uh, the, you know, the planet of adventure series is, is, um, is just more, I don't know. There, there's no single place there. I would say Shay, Durdane, Demon Princes are all very accessible. Leoness is, is very accessible for, um, you know, for people who are more interested in, in the, you know, the fantasy side of stuff. Um, but along the way, uh, the, the murder mysteries are all very readable, um, uh, pleasant, uh, Pleasant Grove murders and Fox Valley murders are are just lovely reads. Very very atmospheric. Um, uh, but you go now, Kuhn. Those that, that's those are my two cents worth there. Uh, well, you, you you said it all already. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give you my personal condensed version. Um, uh, for the four dying earth books, I would recommend actually starting with the first Google book. And that's strictly personal because it's, it's, it's the one that I started with and it's, uh, continued to be my, uh, my, my favorite after all, uh, for, for an introduction to your dad's, uh, entire works. Um, what I tend to do is, uh, try to convince people that they should read a short story, a really good short story, because he wrote a lot of good short stories also, um, all in all, I think we're talking about 140 titles, of which 70, 75 may be considered novel length, and the rest would be short stories. Or is it the other way around? I can't remember. Uh, we, we actually have a volume in our Spatlight Press edition, which is called The Moon Moth and Other Stories. Um, there's there's nine shorter, shorter works in there, uh, five of which feature on people's best fan stories ever list. So uh, that would be an ideal place to, to get started because uh, out of these nine stories, you get five of everyone's uh, favorites, including the Moon Moth uh, to start with, which is, uh, an, an, uh, which is a murder mystery, uh, but not like you've ever <laughs> seen any. And that's and, and volume 31. the Dragon Masters. Dragon Masters yeah. is uh, an insanely good story um, and it's, it's not real long. Really good. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, hopefully, hopefully that will uh, that will help some some more folks introduce themselves to uh, to the works of Jack Vance and discover what everyone here already knows <laughs> that uh, that they're they're just absolutely wonderful. Like I said, like I said, and again, uh, I'm getting ready to sit down and, uh, and read the Great mm -hmm. Prince. Uh, that's going to be that's going to be my afternoon. Is this this lovely old yellow spine daw? Sounds good. 
Well, look, okay. folks, are we, uh, we're probably taking yeah. a lot of your time as well. Um, you got well, some other things you got to attend. Yeah, I was, I was thinking it's, it's, uh, well, you've been very generous with your time yes. as well. And we would like to thank you thank for you. that. And thank you both. Yes, it, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, oh. One, just meeting you and getting to know you. And Jan apparently has a question. I have one last <laughs> pronunciation question. Is it Tassais or Saïs? <laughs> oh, um, well, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I would say it's Tassais, uh, you know, Tassais um, and Tassain, Sain. Um, but, uh, you know, your mileage may vary and either one of them are lovely. You're, you're so incredibly helpful. <laughs> Pronunciations in, in the uh, writings of Jack Vance are just as open and welcoming as the stories themselves. <laughs> Ooh, nice. So, and, nice. And, All right, I'll shut that. Jen, if I can put in the final word, uh, you asked that uh, at the beginning uh, how many languages have, have these books been translated? Oh, yes. I, I did have a peek into our contracts database. Uh, Dying Earth has been published in 16 languages so far. And as I said before, there will be two added, so that it will, it's going to be 18 Wow. wow. That is, that's absolutely wonderful. And um, what is the, the Spatterlight website again for folks that are looking for you know, fan materials and oh, books? It's, it's just www.jackvance, in one word, .com. That's for the ebooks. Um, and then the other website oh. is, is www.amazon. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, actually, on the jackfans.com site, there's 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 a link to a detailed page for our 62 volume Spatterlight Press signature edition, which contains all the VIE editions of the text. And uh, since we do print on demand, they are actually also provided providing links to the different Amazon sites where these books are actually available. Uh, it's, it's the way it is. Uh, we, we looked at different possibilities for doing print-on-demand. And as I said before, John has a full-time job. So have I. Uh, we, we cannot do stock keeping and mailing copies, et cetera. So this, this is the way we need to work so far. And the books are actually fairly good quality, if you ask me. Well, one thing to bear in mind, um, if you're looking for Dying Earth stories, is you may need to buy them from uh, the UK um, or, or out of the EU. Yes. So... so um, yeah, take note. Um, if you just go to Amazon.com, you may not find all the dying or stories there. You got to go to .co.uk. Oh my goodness! Yes, you have links for UK, Canada. Uh, is that? I'm not sure what .de is. Germany. Uh, oh wow. Germany, right? Germany, Spain, France, Italy. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that has to do with with existing publishing contracts. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, Tor. Tor has uh, has rights to dying earth in the United States. Well, that's not complicated at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, thank you again, gentlemen. This is this has been an absolute privilege and and a delight. And I'd like to, to thank everyone that was that was in the uh, the the live stream chat with their questions. And uh, yes, I'm Jen, to... any any last words? I'm I'm just gonna be over here drooling again. It's fine. Move on. <laughs> Mark, I just really thank you, echoing what Bob said. It's been a, a a privilege to meet you and to you know hopefully share some of your father's works um, with our community in a way that um, you know that that gets them interested in reading the actual books and and exploring more about uh, Jack Vance. Well, thank you so much, and and really the um, you know the. The thanks um, really flow from this direction towards you folks, um, you know, because um, 
uh, you know, our, my dad's fans have always been um, kind of like family to us. And, and it's no exaggeration to say that, you know, I mean, um, you know, we, they kept the lights on here, you know, um, over the years. Um, so, but no, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and, you know, maybe we can do this again sometime, you know, uh, in, you know, and, you know, that would be that. That <laughs> yeah. would be wonderful. That'd be, okay. uh, you you just let us know when you're available, <laughs> and we'll come up with more fanish questions to to bombard you with for wonderful, wonderful. as much time as you want to give us. Um, from, from from my side, also thanks for uh, for having us here. It's been a fun chat, uh, and uh, well, I hope all your uh, readers, listeners uh, had a good time, and and I really look forward to uh, to seeing the uh, the final copies of those uh, books you're producing because. As I said, the, uh, the, the Fancy and Magic book is, is really quite something, and I'm sure that the others will also be up to par. Thank you very much, and, and to our listeners, I, I hope that you have found this as inspirational as I have. Have a good day. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. Copyright 2019.